Welcome to the preaching ministry of Tri-City Baptist Church in Chandler, Arizona. Our desire is that God would be magnified through the preaching of His Word, and that Christians would be challenged, strengthened, and edified in their personal walk with Christ. Well, it is a joy to be with you tonight. I always enjoy the opportunity to share God's Word here in this church and through this ministry from this pulpit. And uh, it's, it's, uh, we are looking forward to our time together the next few Sunday evenings that we have. Earlier in the summer, Dr. Shumay preached a wonderful series of messages uh, from the Book of Romans, uh, kind of an overview. Uh, I, think he, I think it was eight messages he preached uh, covering, covering the Book of Romans, uh, which is quite a feat to be able to cover the Book of Romans in, in those messages. Uh, he called it uh, a bird's eye view. That bird was flying pretty high uh, to be able to see all of that. And uh, in the process of that, he, he made a statement that just really stuck with me. He used the phrase describing, I'm not sure if it was chapters 5 to 8 or somewhere in that section, uh, as living under the smile of God. And as I thought about that, that really struck me that oftentimes many believers do not really understand um, that God is pleased with them, that, God, that, that they are right with God. They live in fear. They live in intimidation. They, they live in uh, just uncertainty as to their relationship with God, perhaps oftentimes very fearful uh, about the fact that someday that they will stand before God. And nowhere is that phrase, I think, seen the best or seen most accurately uh, than in chapter 8 of the book of Romans. And uh, in, the, in chapter 8, we find what I, I want to call basic foundational truths for the Christian. And we'll talk about tonight a few of those. I'll kind of give you an outline of where we're going. But I think it's very important for us to understand. It's, it's very important for us to, to grasp uh, just the realization of where we stand before God. Uh, we are all aware of the fact, I'm not going to review the book of Romans, but we are aware that the book of Romans is the theological book of the New Testament. Uh, we, we see man's accountability before his creator, uh, his sinfulness, as described very thoroughly in the early chapters of the need for justification by faith alone, our standing before God, our access through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ, our sanctification, uh, the indwelling of the Spirit of God, the need for our yieldedness to Him. Uh, chapter 7 really describes some of the wrestling and struggles with sin that, that we all identify with. Uh, Paul talks about how that when he would do good, you know, evil is present with him and, and we, we don't do the things we should do. We do the things we should not do. And that struggle leads to the introduction of chapter 8 when he says, There is therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. That therefore is there because of that struggle referred to earlier that we have with sin. 
And uh, because we, we do struggle with that, we, we, we question our standing sometimes before God as the people of God. But he reminds us here that there is no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. I'd like us to read just the first eight verses tonight. And we're going to talk about one of the most glorious truths, most foundational truths uh, of the Christian life. And that is our deliverance from the law of sin and death. Beginning in verse 1, we read, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Let's ask God's blessing and help as we look into this passage this evening. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the great promises we have in your word. We thank you for for the great truth that we're going to look at tonight, that there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Father, I pray that you would help us to grasp this truth. I pray that you will will make it very real to us. I pray that we will understand how it applies to us and and how it should affect our daily life. Uh, Just, Lord, use your word today. Uh, Fill me with your spirit as I open your word this evening. I pray that Christ will be exalted. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, the failure to understand that the truth of this statement, that there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, can lead to a couple of different extremes. Uh, it can lead to a melancholy, a depression, a, or a, a depressed spirit that is robbed of the joy of the Lord. Many people in church history in ages past struggled with sometimes a very melancholy spirit. Uh, William Cowper, or I think sometimes his name is pronounced Cooper, who wrote many of our our hymns that we sing in the 18th century, uh, was known for having a depressed or just a, a, a melancholic spirit that robbed him of, of the joy of the Lord. It's amazing to think of someone who writes such beautiful words and, and expresses such great truth can, can be struggling with, with discouragement, depression, and fear of God. But he was constantly, at least in his early life, plagued with depression and fear of his own eternal damnation. Some 
people like that have been described as someone who gets on a plane. You know, some people get on a plane and they are excited about flying and uh, they are enjoying every aspect of it. They're looking out the window. They are just just enjoying life and enjoying the, the, the joy of travel. Other people have to be drugged to get on the airplane. But they both get to their destination. There are some believers like that who, who are saved, who know the Lord, but they just do not enjoy much of the Christian life because they live in this constant fear that God is angry with me, that, that God is going to deal with my sin, and I, I'm just, I, am, I am fearful and, and living constantly under uh, that truth of, of the wrath of God. The other extreme from that is to think that you're, because of, of, of not understanding your, your standing before God, to think that somehow your own effort, your work, is necessary to please God, to earn the pleasure of God. This becomes an effort to just a, of, of really pure legalism to try to earn God's favor by your works. Uh, your life is not about the joy of serving Christ as much as it is about the, just the discipline of obeying God lest the wrath of God be poured out upon you. And the truth that Paul declares here in chapter 8, after describing this battle, is that there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. In fact, there are several truths here in this chapter. Before we, go, before we, we, we park here in verses 1 to 8, I just want you to kind of see the direction that we are going. There's this four, maybe five truths. I'm going to, I'm going to present it in four messages uh, that you find here really emphasized in, in chapter eight. First of all, the freedom from condemnation, uh, this joy that we have uh, in Christ, that, that we stand judicially innocent before God. We stand in God's sight as righteous. And we'll talk about that more this evening. And then we have in verses nine through 17, Paul directs our attention to the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and what that means for us, how he gives us life and how he, he um, uh, works in our heart and, and, and the, what we have here, that spirit of Christ, the spirit of God, the, uh, the spirit of, 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 of uh, God who raised Christ from the dead. We'll talk about that next week. And then verses 18 through 25, he focuses then on the hope of eternal life. The fact that the sufferings of this present world really uh, are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. And he he goes into great detail talking about this hope that we have and what it means for us. And then the last section of this chapter, verses 28 through 38, he really focuses on the assurance of God's eternal plan. uh, How he has given us uh, his, his spirit who makes intercession for us. We know all things work together for good. We know then that, that if God is for us, who can be against us? Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Uh, many fantastic statements of truth uh, in, in, in those verses alone. So I want us tonight to look at this first idea, though, we find in the first eight verses that there is therefore no condemnation uh, to those who are in Christ Jesus. The word condemnation really is a judicial word. The specific word here, the full word is used three times in the book of Romans. 
Now, some of the roots are used elsewhere, as, as we'll see. But Romans 5, 16, he talks about Adam's sin and the judgment which came from one offense, one offense, the, the, the sin of Adam, resulted in condemnation. God's wrath, God's judgment uh, upon mankind. And then a little bit later in verse 18, he uses the same word again. He talks about how through one man's offense, again, Adam's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. Uh, John 3, verses 17 and 18, Jesus says that he did not come into the world to condemn the world, but that the world... uh, would, would believe the world was already was condemned already. He uses the, the root word of this word found in Romans and uh, pretty much the same idea, the same, same meaning. But Christ is stating that the world was already under condemnation. The idea that Paul's talking about here is our legal standing before God. It is the absolute opposite of our justification. It is theologically and practically the the opposite. There is no condemnation. The world stands under God's condemnation, but those who are in Christ Jesus have been declared legally innocent or legally just before a holy God. So to put that under simple layman terms, we, we do live under the smile and pleasure of God. The fact is that that our hearts should be filled with joy when we understand that God's wrath has been set aside for us. Uh, that, That we have freedom from the burden of having to earn that pleasure of God. It means that no sin will ever reverse the divine legal decision that declares us righteous through the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ received by faith alone. It's the starting point of our sanctification. Uh, It's the starting point of our walk with Christ in this life. It's not made about everyone. It's not said for everyone. It's said it's for those who are in Christ Jesus, for those who walk not in the flesh, but in the spirit. We have been made new creatures in Christ as we will see. Now, having made this bold statement, Paul now begins to give us some of the reasons for this. Now, I like to have good news. I enjoy good news. But good news can oftentimes not be accurate news. I like it when I have a, some good reason to believe the good news that someone shares, me, shares with me. If someone's going to do something wonderful for me, tell you this is great news for you and your family, and I've never seen any evidence of it, that doesn't, that can be disillusioning, right? Uh, I, maybe I'm unusual in this. I, I tend to hesitate about getting excited sometimes about biblical truth until I really make sure I understand the truth. Um, I'll give you an example. There, there's, there's many wonderful books on prayer. Many wonderful books that give great stories about prayer, great illustrations of God answering prayer. And I would read those books oftentimes as a young Christian or a younger Christian and say, okay, that's great. But I always had these questions in the back of my mind. Is that, 
are they really interpreting those verses correctly? Are they applying those verses correctly? And then I read a, a book one time. It was, it was somewhat of a technical book written by a theologian dealing with the issue of prayer. But he answered those questions in my mind. And though that book was not a book, probably a lot of people would read and say, wow, that was a great blessing. He didn't use a lot of illustrations. He didn't tell a lot of stories. It gave me the foundation, the reason, the understanding, the biblical understanding to have confidence that God answers prayer. That's what Paul's doing here in these eight verses. He makes this bold statement. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Wonderful. But how do we know that for sure? Well, he gives us four reasons or four evidences of that in these verses. And uh, he uses the little preposition for. And he uses it four times. I wish it was five times or three times because that's awful confusing to say he used four, four times. But he did. And there are four evidences in these following verses that support the fact that there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. How do I know that? How can I say that with confidence? Why is there no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus? Well, the first reason he gives us in verse uh, 2 is that the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. There's two phrases in there that we need to think about. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus and the law of sin and death. First of all, the law of the spirit of life in Christ. We're not talking here about written laws in the Ten Commandments or the Mosaic law. We're talking about the natural consequences of being in Christ. He has paid sin's penalty. He is our penal substitute. The debt is paid. Therefore, in Christ, we are free. Now, again, note, it's not all men who are free. But it's those who are in Christ, those who walk not in the flesh, but in the spirit. A little bit earlier, he said in Romans 3, 24, that we are ju justified freely through his grace. Declared innocent, declared righteous, declared just freely through his grace. Romans 8, 30, he says, talks about those he called, he justified. And then Galatians 2.16 says that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. The natural consequences of being in Christ, the spirit of life in Christ, the fact that we are in Christ, freely justified through faith in him alone, makes you and me free from the law of sin and death. And then secondly, he talks about this law of sin and death. The law of sin and death, the, 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 the effort of the flesh, the effort of, of trying to earn our righteousness. The law was good and righteous, but, but our flesh is weak. And so the sin leads to death. 
And he goes on here to talk about what the law could not do. Uh, he says in verse 3, In that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin. So the law of sin and death could not cleanse you from sin's corruption, no matter how hard you tried. It could not free you from sin's penalty. And it could not, uh, and it could not free you from sin's domain. What the law could not do, the law of the Spirit of Christ, of life in Christ Jesus, accomplished. You know what that means, don't you? It means that we are free. It means that, that God has redeemed us. It means that we are justified. Now, when you think of somebody and you hear stories about someone who has sitting, been sitting for years under the condemnation of their crime. Maybe they committed some foolish act as a young person. It, it was just terrible, but, but it was an evidence of their immaturity, an evidence of their just failing to deal with basic issues of life. And they spend much of their life imprisoned or under judgment. And then someone comes along and looks at the case and reviews the case and decides that they can be free. And after years, you hear stories about people who, who sat on, on death row or for whatever reasons are granted a pardon. And, and, and words, really, I think if, if you and I were in that situation, could not express the joy and gratitude that must fill your heart at a point like that. But you and I have been forgiven of much more than just earthly crimes. We were condemned already for rejecting the gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ. The writer of Hebrews says, we have taken underfoot and, and trampled under our feet the precious blood of Christ. But yet there was a day when the Spirit of God drew you to himself and opened your eyes and turned, your, turned you to, and opened your eyes to faith and repentance. And you called upon him to save you. And you were set free. You were declared innocent. And now, because you have put your trust in Christ, you are in Christ, there is no condemnation. That penalty that you should have paid, that judgment that, that you should, that should be yours, has been removed by the blood of Jesus Christ. And you are free. It's not because you deserve it, but it's because of his grace. That is the heart, that is the soul really of the Christian life. So we rejoice that there's no condemnation because the spirit of Christ, spirit of life in Christ has set us free. But secondly, because he talks about here in verses three and four, God sent his son in the likeness of sinful flesh. In other words, God sent his son to do what that law could not do. Verse 3 talks about how God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us 
who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. We already have seen the inadequacy of the law to forgive and justify sinners. The law demands that sin be atoned for. There is a righteous requirement of the law. God sent his son. Notice how carefully the scripture words this. God sent his son in the likeness of sinful flesh. He, the Bible says he was tempted in all points as we are yet without sin. Uh, he became sin for us who knew no sin. That we might be made the righteousness of God in him. 1 John 2 1 says that he himself is the perpetuation for our sins and not for ours only but for the sins of the world. He did so that he might fulfill the righteous requirement of the law for those who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. This should really shed fresh light when we think about the Easter story. When we think about Christ's death on the cross and his resurrection, it should have been me and you. We should have borne that penalty in our body. We should have paid that price, which would have been more than just physical death, but it would have been eternal separation forever and ever uh, from God. But he bore that shame on the cross that you and I might live. And this point is made in several of the scriptures as, as we read here, that it's so that we might walk in the spirit and not in the flesh. Or that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. In other words, we do not pursue righteousness to appease a holy God and earn some type of justification. We pursue righteousness because we have been set free to pursue righteousness. And because of our love and gratitude for Christ, we and, and the spirit of Christ that is in our hearts, we as God's people should desire and pursue righteousness. So that leads us to yet another evidence of our freedom from condemnation. We have liberation from condemnation. We have had a substitute who paid sin's penalty for us. But thirdly, he says, those in Christ have been transformed. We understand there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus because he's made us new creatures. Those who live according to the flesh, he says in verse 5, set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. There has been a dramatic change in the life of anyone who has been raised to walk with Christ. Our lives, we've been made new creatures. I grew up in a, a part of the country where uh, you would hear a lot of teaching uh, that inferred, well, they didn't infer, they came out and said it, that, that you could lose your salvation. And I talked with many people. I, was, I remember as a, even as a young boy, as a young college student, working on the staff of my church, I just remember talking to a lot of people who, if you ask them if they were a believer, they say, well, at one time I was. But I, I know I've lost my salvation. And I did this, I must have sinned, or I did something, and I, I'm no, I no longer, you know, I'm a child of God. I know I should be, but, you know. 
always amazed me when I began to study theologically all that God does for us when we are saved. We are justified. We are redeemed. We are made new creatures. We are set apart in Christ. Uh, We are joined to the body of Christ. We are raised from the dead spiritually. We are given life in Christ. I mean, I, I'm, I'm only touching the surface. I, I, I could probably have written out a list of about 20 or 30 things the scripture says is true of those who are in Christ. So that means all that God has done all that. You're born again. You're made a new creature in Christ. And now because of the flesh that you still live in the flesh, you sin. So therefore God takes all that away. Are you unredeemed? Are you unjustified? Are you, are you made an old creature again? Um, I mean, it doesn't even make logical sense. We have been made new creatures in Christ. We have been transformed. As he says here, those, those of us who, who are saved, uh, are, we, we live according to uh, those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. Those who live according to the spirit, the things of the spirit. There is a total transformation of our mind. The flesh is used here in reference to the unregenerate man. His mind is set on the things of the flesh, the world. Not only does this refer to his focus, but his desire. The, the natural man, the unsaved man, does not have a desire for the spiritual things, but it only helps him to accomplish and satisfy his fleshly desires. In contrast, those of us who live according to the Spirit have been set free, and our mind is on the things of the Spirit of God. Why did you want to come to church today? Why did you come? Was it because you wanted to impress someone, you wanted people to think highly of you, Or was it because of your yearning to worship and praise God? My guess is probably most of those who came this morning had a hunger for the things of God. Maybe it was not complete. Maybe it was not pure. Maybe it was not, you know, as as intense, perhaps as as it should be. But Christians have 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 a different heart attitude towards the things of God. Now, I find it, you know, I, I pastored in California. Um, and though that was 15 years ago, uh, it's worse now than it was 15 years ago by far. But the truth is, very few people who are unsaved have a desire to go to church. So when an unsaved person showed up at our church on a Sunday morning, though they had, may have been invited, you know, there may be a number of superficial reasons as to why they came to see their grandchildren or to, you know, to, to, maybe because of self-tradition. The fact that they even came, I realized was a real amazing work of God in their life. God's doing something in their life. The, the natural man does not wake up on a Sunday morning and say, oh, I think I ought to go to church. I think I ought to sit in, for an hour and listen to some man open an ancient book and tell me what I should be doing or should not be doing. I should go and, and, and sing some great hymns of the faith and, 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 and maybe spend some time in prayer. 
That's just not natural for the unsaved man, okay? When you got saved, if you, especially if you came from an unchurched background, I'm sure it was quite an interesting transformation time. Uh, uh, how, you know, all of a sudden you start showing interest in the things of God. And you may not have had even an explanation as, as to why all of a sudden you want to start going to church. But you did. You, you had an interest in, in the things of God. You had an interest in the word of God. You began to start reading the Bible. You began to start understanding some of the things of the Bible. Unsaved people just don't understand this and, and can't grasp it. I remember a lady one time in, in a church I was pastoring she had gotten saved. She was growing just tremendously in the things of God. And, and she was coming to Sunday school in the morning. She was coming to the morning service. And then she started coming on Sunday evening. But she told me when I started coming Sunday evening, my husband was really concerned. Because he thought she was going to church because out of guilt. And, you know, to have her sins paid for. And he, she said, he told me one time, he says, what is it you've done? What is it you're doing that you need to go to church so often? He couldn't grasp the fact that the only reason he could think of someone going to church was to go do some act of penance and, and, and therefore be absolved of some type of sin. That's all he understood. He couldn't understand that she had a desire to sit under the preaching and teaching of God's word. Well, those of us in Christ have been changed. We have been transformed. And that's an evidence that we are no longer under condemnation. There's a final reason that he gives. We've been set free in Christ Jesus. We have a substitute, uh, the person of Jesus Christ, who came in the likeness of sinful flesh. We see that our minds have been changed. But... He gives us a fourth reason in verses 6 through 8. He says in verse 6, For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. There is the consequence of actions and how it, 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 it manifests itself in us. To be carnally minded is death. There, there are consequences. If I'm going to live in the flesh, the result's going to be death. But to be spiritually minded is life and peace. The carnal mind lives in this realm of spiritual death. There's a consequence to our decisions. The carnal mind is describing as being hostile towards God. Uh, it's not subject to the law of God. In fact, he goes on to say that it is even unable to please God. You see this all around us today. It's always been there, but it has become more obvious as the fear of expressing anger at God publicly is less and less looked down upon. 
So people are oftentimes very, very angry and express great hostility towards Christianity, towards Christians in general. Uh, and that's always been there, but it's never, at least in our country, has not been the acceptable thing to do. Now it's becoming more acceptable. And people are just expressing what really has always been in many of their hearts. Recently, one of our uh, Islamic congresswomen women, accused another congressman of slander and bigotry. Now, what was his crime? His crime was that he said in, in some statement that Jesus Christ is the only hope for the world. That means you are a bigot. That means you are slandering. That means you are filled with hate. I mean, we live in a world that's just manifesting hate and unreasonableness. Who would have ever thought there would be any question about two sexes, male and female, or that Christianity, which is the example of loving your neighbor, would be called hate thought. And yet this world, thinking themselves to be wise, have become fools because to be carnally minded is death. But to be spiritually minded is life and peace. That's, that's the primary frame of reference, the difference mindset today between those who are lost and those who are in Christ. The world is very angry. Uh, it's hostile towards God. That hostility towards God is very open and very manifested today. And, and people are not afraid of, 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 of declaring it. But the spiritual mind is that of life and peace. So that even when the world is falling apart around us, we who are in Christ have life and peace. And that's an evidence, Paul's arguing, that there's no condemnation. We are not under condemnation in Christ because we, we are free from that. And we enjoy life and peace. I wonder this evening, do you know that, first of all, you are in Christ? You know, we read this passage, it's a, it's a tremendous passage of the fact that we are judicially innocent before God. But again, that's, that's for only those who are in Christ Jesus. It's those who are walking in the spirit, not in the flesh. Uh, it would be very wrong for me tonight to be talking about this passage and not ask you the simple question, do you know your sins are forgiven? Do you know that you are in Christ? Do you know you're free from condemnation? And, and, and I ask that to both unbelievers and believers tonight. As I said, there are a lot of people, a lot of those who profess Christ who just still struggle with this issue of, of not really understanding that they have been declared innocent before a righteous God. I say, I don't deserve it. You're right. You're right. You don't. I don't either. But he bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might live. Are you somehow then trying to earn his approval? Are you somehow trying to earn his favor rather than living out of the joy of knowing you're free, have been set free by Christ. It's a glorious truth to know that we have been forgiven. It's a glorious truth to know that we have been set free. 
It's a wonderful thing to know that I do not have to stand and, 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 and before a holy God and try to somehow justify myself to somehow earn, to, to argue that I earn favor with God or I deserve favor from God. If you know Christ, if you're in Christ, you're his child. Later, he uses the term adoption. We, we have the adoption of sons. We, he, he's our father. We are his adopted children. What a glorious truth that is, that in Christ, there is no condemnation. I don't know what you're looking at this week. Maybe it's not going to be the most exciting week on your, on your calendar. But you know what? When you think about this truth, it ought to give you joy. It ought to cause you to shout for joy, to rejoice. That even in dark circumstances, dark circumstances, even in a world that is filled with evil and untruth and falsehood, if you're in Christ, you've been set free. We're free. We're forgiven. We're pardoned. We're justified. There is no condemnation, not a little condemnation. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Let's bow our heads in prayer.